Hey guys, welcome back. This is Kevin, and uh, I got something different for you today. So uh, one of the things I like to do when I uh, study uh, uh, books of the Bible is to do a little research of the background of the author and so forth. And so uh, my next book that I want to study is uh, the Gospel of Mark, and it uh, occurred to me that I didn't really know very much about Mark himself. And uh, so I opened up some Bible encyclopedias and commentaries and so forth and did some background study. And boy, I'll tell you, the more I learned about this guy, the more uh, it was just so moving and so invigorating. Uh, it was an amazing story. And uh, so I I decided that I was going to write it down and... Um, and so today, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read to you uh, the story of John Mark uh, that, that I've learned in recent weeks. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. The Gospel of Mark is anonymous. Whoever wrote it didn't sign his name. But the earliest sources in church history all unanimously attribute this book to a first century Jewish man whose name was John Mark. One of the most ancient bishops of the early church, named Papias, is quoted as saying that he learned from the Apostle John himself that Mark was the author of this gospel. So who was this man, anyways? He wasn't one of the original disciples. He wasn't an apostle, or even, so far as we know, an eyewitness of the original events. So how did this otherwise insignificant fellow from the first century come to pen what many scholars believe to be the very first biography of Jesus Christ? Well, as with many things from ancient history, we don't have all the answers that we might like. But if we patiently assemble all the clues and historical fragments that have come down to us, both from Scripture and from the testimony of the early church fathers, a very remarkable story begins to emerge. Let's start with what we know for sure about him. We're first introduced to him in the book of Acts, chapter 12. The date is roughly 43 or 44 AD. It's been a little over a decade since Christ has risen from the dead. The popularity of the movement that the Messiah had started was still growing dramatically, both in Jerusalem, where John Mark lived, and across the Jewish countryside. The mood in the church was positively electric. Nevertheless, from an external perspective, the church wasn't much to speak of. There were no church buildings, no pews, no hymnals, none of the amenities that we associate with church today. There are no paid pastors or stained glass windows or worship bands. In fact, they didn't even have a Bible other than the Hebrew Scriptures because the New Testament hadn't even begun to be written. The mustard seed of Christianity was still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. Even the term Christian itself had only recently been invented, and it was a derogatory term. And in 44 AD, this fledgling sprout of a community was about to undergo one of the most severe challenges yet. An ominous dark cloud was looming over the horizon. King Herod Agrippa had recently come to power, and he was ruling the country of Judea. One of his political goals was to appease the Jews of the land. So naturally, he aimed his target at one of the Jews' sworn enemies, the Christians. And what better way to extinguish the Christians than by annihilating their leadership? His first victim was none other than James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of Christ's three most beloved disciples. Herod found him, arrested him, and executed him, just like that. He basically decapitated the church by killing its most prominent leader, the Jews, of course, were delighted, so Herod set his sights on the next most wanted criminal, Simon Peter. You can imagine the dismay of the terrified Christians as they watched the soldiers arrest Peter and drag him into the same prison that James had gone to. It was starting to look like this pogrom of extinction was going to be all too easy. But, dismayed or not, 
the Christians were not surrendering. They were simply taking the battle to their knees. There was, in fact, one particular house in Jerusalem that had become the intercessor's headquarters. It was a fairly large house, but it was full to the rafters with Christians from all over town who had courageously gathered in bold defiance of the political threats to cry out to their God on behalf of Peter. The house belonged to a wealthy widow by the name of Mary, not to be confused with any of the other Marys that are mentioned in Scripture. We don't know much about the house itself apart from a few modest clues in Scripture, but there is some indication that it may actually have been the same house which was used for the Lord's Last Supper, and the same house where the Holy Spirit first broke out on fiery Pentecost. This was a house of passion and prayer. One can only imagine the fervor of the prayers of these faithful Christians on that dark and desperate night. But there was one young man who didn't have to imagine it at all. The hostess Mary was his mother. So the room this throng of intercessors had gathered in was his own living room. The young man had two names, a Jewish one and a Roman one. His Jewish name was John, and his Roman name, Marcus, or Mark, is speculated by some to have come from a Roman father, which would have made him a half-blood, but this is uncertain. One thing is for sure, John Mark grew up surrounded by a thriving community of dedicated, fervent Christians. The gathering in his house that night was certainly not new for John Mark. As I said, this house was widely known among the Christians for being a gathering place for the faithful, so much so that when the Apostle Peter was miraculously rescued from prison that night by an angel, this was the house where he knew he could find refuge, the place where he went to straight away. It's not hard to imagine what an amazing surge of enthusiasm must have rushed over that crowd when the persistent knocking at the front gate turned out to be that of none other than Peter himself. Can you imagine how, the, how rapt their attention must have been when Peter described the angel cracking open his iron shackles and walking him right past the guards? Oh, what a glorious worship service they must have had that night. And I'm fairly confident that no one was touched more deeply that evening or impacted more profoundly than young John Mark. There's nothing like an angelic visit and a miraculous escape from prison to absolutely captivate the attention of a wide-eyed young man. Now, as I said before, we don't know much historical background about Mark. One of the early church fathers mentioned that John's nickname was Stub Fingers. We don't know how he got that moniker, but it is quite possible that his hands were, in fact, physically disabled in some way. If true, this would be particularly remarkable, given that he would go on to handwrite one of the most significant documents in all of human history. What we do know is that John Mark eventually became a close friend and companion of Peter's. I can only guess how many nights he stayed up late talking to Peter under the torchlight, urging him to recount more breathtaking stories of the Messiah King. But as it happens, it was actually another man who would have the most profound and lifelong impact on John Mark. It was a man by the name of Barnabas, who just happened to be John Mark's cousin. And not long after the midnight celebration of Peter's deliverance, cousin Barnabas came to town, knocking on the Marcus household gate. Barnabas was accompanied that afternoon by an up-and-coming servant of the Lord, whose name was Paul of Tarsus. Paul's reputation preceded him. He had converted from a notorious life of Christian hunting years earlier, but he hadn't been seen in these parts for nearly a decade. But now, here they were, Paul and Barnabas on John Mark's doorstep, and they were inviting him to join them on their return trip to the Christian hotspot of Antioch. Little did he know it then, 
But John Mark was about to get swept up into a life of adventure far beyond what he was prepared for. Arriving in Antioch was like entering a new world for John Mark. It was a huge and bustling metropolis, the third largest in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria. But it was also becoming the new epicenter of Christianity. The kingdom of God was literally bursting at its seams here, with new people coming to the Lord virtually every day. It must have been perfectly thrilling for John Mark to see all that was going on, but also perhaps a little disorienting because of the striking ethnic diversity of all these new believers. Antioch was his first exposure to the reality that the Church of Jesus Christ was not intended merely for the Jews of his hometown and country, but truly for all the peoples of the entire world. And if that wasn't startling enough, the adventure that he was about to participate in would truly blow his categories. One of the things that John Mark was accustomed to from his upbringing was the world-changing nature of the prayer meetings that the churches participated in. Far from being dry and boring obligations, these gatherings were the lifeblood of the church, fueled by fasting, saturated in worship, and punctuated by prophecies. These prayer meetings were truly the seedbed of revival in Antioch and across the world. And it was at just one of these prayer gatherings that three prophets stood up and anointed Paul and Barnabas, announcing that they had been selected by the Holy Spirit for an extraordinary and unprecedented new assignment. They were called to take this kingdom message far beyond the borders of their own country, to cities and villages that the Holy Spirit wouldn't reveal to them until they were on their way. So, after yet more praying and laying hands on these new missionaries, they sent them off on a grand and unpredictable adventure, and who should be selected as their personal assistant? <laughs> yeah, John Mark, of course. Just try to imagine that if you can. I mean, what an amazing opportunity for an intrepid young man like John Mark. I'm sure there have been countless Christians throughout the ages who would have given anything for the privilege of accompanying those two apostles on the first missionary journey. But it was John Mark who got the front row seat as they marched down to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and boarded a ship bound for Cyprus. Well, the expedition certainly started with a bang. On their first stop, a satanic wizard was instantly blinded after a power encounter with the Apostle Paul, and the proconsul and governor of the entire island was saved on the spot. The mission appeared to be succeeding fabulously. Which makes what happened next so bafflingly difficult to understand. Something apparently snapped inside of John Mark's heart, and what started out so promising in this young disciple suddenly took an unexpected nosedive. Scripture describes the event in spare words. All it says is, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. Acts 13.13 John Mark went AWOL. And he didn't just return to Antioch, but he went all the way back home to Jerusalem. Countless scholars throughout church history have offered up innumerable suggestions to try to explain what was going on in John Mark's mind. Was he feeling seasick from the journey? Was he fearful of the rugged landscape in front of them? Was he just homesick for his mama's cooking? Bottom line is, we just don't know. Here's what we do know, however. Paul was none too happy with the decision. In fact, he was positively peeved. I can only imagine the conversation that day. Are you kidding? Go back home? 
You can't leave now. You've been commissioned as an emissary of the Most High God. We need you. We're counting on you, soldier. Man up. I don't know what the words were that were exchanged, but I do know that it was emotional. We know this because Scripture records that Paul was still steaming about it years later. We read about that in Acts 15, 36 and following. It says, After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Ah, well, you don't split up a partnership as historic and iconic as that of Paul and Barnabas over trivial matters. From the Apostle Paul's perspective, whatever it was that John did that day disqualified him from ministry. What a brutal indictment. What a tragic failure. This kid had the opportunity of a lifetime to travel across the world planting churches with the Apostle Paul. But he shipwrecked. He collapsed under the pressure and he ran away from the battlefield disheartened, demoralized, and defeated. Now I need to stop right there for a moment because I know there are people reading or hearing this who who have personally experienced the pain of having a blowout on the battlefield. Some of us can relate very closely to John Mark. After a promising start, we got distracted or derailed or decommissioned. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to go back to your loved ones, hanging your head in shame, having to admit that you bailed out, that you bombed, that you, you couldn't cut it. And now here you are, years later, and you still have voices in your life, even respected godly voices, claiming that you aren't worth a second chance. Well, I'm here to tell you that this is precisely where John Mark found himself. How would you like none other than the Apostle Paul saying, he's an untrustworthy misfit and he's not making it back on my squad? That's the type of pronouncement that could permanently deep-six a man's ministry ambitions. But praise God, that wasn't the only voice in John Mark's ears. I mentioned earlier that the person who I believe had the most life-shaping influence on John was a man named Barnabas. And this is the part of the story where that influence comes to its full measure. Because by some spirit-led impulse in the heart of Barnabas, whose name means encourager, he was able to put a strong, loving arm around his cousin's shoulder and look him in the eye and tell him, You are not done. He said, Your story is not over. The last chapter of your journey has not yet been written. I see God's heart in you. I see it. I know you can't see it right now, but I do. And God does. And I'm here to tell you, I need you. I want you with me. Let's do this together. And so, with that soul-resurrecting voice still ringing in his ears, John Mark set off with Barnabas on another mission trip to change the world. Now, sadly, we're going to have to wait until heaven to hear the rest of that story because Luke did not record it. This is where Mark leaves the stage of the book of Acts never to return. Luke never tells us whether Barnabas' bold gamble ever paid off. Was he right to give this backslider a second chance? If all we had was the book of Acts, we would have no way to be sure. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. 
Years go by, maybe a decade at least. John Mark keeps on working, praying, serving, and ministering, all in total obscurity. But something happened in those years. Somewhere along the line, there was a reunion. Somewhere in the intervening years, John Mark sat down again with the Apostle Paul, and the two of them had a very long conversation. I'm only guessing here, because we don't know exactly how it happened. All we know is that when Paul wrote his letter to the Church of Colossians, he included this line at the very end. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. These are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Colossians 4, 10-11 And a few years later, as Paul was penning his last recorded words, he said this to his dear friend Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas has deserted me. Luke alone is with me. And get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 9-11 (laughs) How about that? From apostolic outcast to beloved and valued co-worker. All because Barnabas refused to give up on him. Mark won over the heart of the apostle and became one of Paul's most valued and indispensable helpers. An historic tradition tells us that John Mark stayed with Paul in Rome all the way up to the apostle's execution. But that's not all. Do you remember those torch-lit conversations that John Mark had with the apostle Peter way back at the thrilling inception of the story? When John Mark pestered Peter with question after question, pleading with him, Tell me more about that man, Peter. Who was he? Who was Jesus? Well, as it turns out, those conversations kept on going over the years, and Peter became one of John Mark's most devoted mentors. We know this from a tiny comment that Peter made in one of his epistles. He said, She who is chosen together with you in Babylon, that is the church in Rome, sends you greetings, as does my son Mark. 1 Peter 5.13 By calling John Mark his son, He uses the same terminology that Paul used of his beloved disciple Timothy. Clearly, Peter had grown deeply fond of this young protege and loved him as if he was his own child. Sadly, there's nothing else in Scripture about this man, John Mark. However, there were several early church fathers, men who were direct spiritual descendants of the apostles in the decades that followed, who preserved and passed on stories about him. They tell us that John Mark spent years traveling with Peter and listening to his sermons and stories. They tell us that he was with Peter in Rome when he too was executed there. And they tell us that during that time or shortly after, Mark decided to write down on paper for the first time the biographical details of Jesus the Messiah. Stories that he had heard directly from the Lord's closest eyewitness, Peter himself. It's considered likely though not certain, that Matthew and Luke used Mark's writings as the basis for their own gospel accounts. And if you read Mark's gospel closely, you'll see numerous occasions where he records things with such intimate knowledge that it seems he's giving details he could only have learned from a very close eyewitness. One thing that Mark didn't mention in his gospel was his own name. Professional modesty and literary purpose prevented him from doing so. He didn't want to distract anyone from the central character of that story. 
His gospel is filled with people asking, who is this man? And even Jesus himself saying, who do you say that I am? It's as if Mark wants his readers to ask the same question that he was asking Peter over and over so that those readers could come to the same conclusion that he did, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amusingly, there is one small detail in Mark that offers a tantalizing clue of a possible autobiographical cameo. It's recorded in the last night before the crucifixion as the men left the upper room, which, as we have already noted, may well have been John Mark's house. Mark includes a detail of the story after the climactic moment of Jesus' arrest in the garden that none of the other gospel writers mention. He says, Then the disciples all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. The soldiers caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Mark 14, 50-52 Many commentators believe that Mark was candidly referring to himself when speaking of that young man who ran away. And if this deduction is true, it's utterly remarkable and stunning. Can you imagine penning for all time the story of the Messiah, and the only reference to yourself that you choose to include is the account of the single most humiliating and dishonorable moment of your life. It's as if he's broadcasting to the world, I know who I was. I was nothing. I was a worthless, naked deserter. And that's all I ever would have been. But Jesus didn't give up on me. He included me in the story. I may have written the story about him, but he wrote the story about me. And he intertwined my story with all the others. And together, we're changing the world. Because there's no story that's worth telling but his story. And I'll go to my grave telling you about him. Because it's all there is worth to tell. And if historical tradition is accurate, Mark did just that. We're told that later in his life, he went on to become the first missionary to Egypt and started the first church in the city of Alexandria, the second largest city of the empire. He eventually became the bishop of that city, the leading pastor of the entire metropolis. And legend tells us that when the empire finally caught up with him, he was killed for his faith, either by being burned or dragged along stones. And so ended the life of one of the faithful warriors of the kingdom. He didn't start out that way, but God wrote the end of his story. And so, the next time you open up the Bible to the gospel according to Mark, try to remember where those words came from. Remind yourself that God chose an unfaithful, disfigured, chicken-hearted runaway to become a hero of the faith, to become the one who would record for all time the most important story that's ever been.